to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, is Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How are you? I'm grand, thanks, Ed. Very happy to be here. I've been off the radar, or the RSS feed, whichever you'd prefer to uh, think of it as. And I had a lovely holiday in Denmark with my mm. cousins. So, tack, everyone. It's, uh, it's good to be back. Cool. Which part of Denmark were you kind of visiting? Well, I started off in Copenhagen and then mm. we went from kind of east to west over to Odense, uh, which is the birthplace of one Hans Christian Andersen. And then over yeah. to uh, Aarhus, which is a super cool dock kind of place where my cousin lives. So fit a lot in within five days, but it was that total holiday thing where it feels like you've been away for a month. And you kind of mm. you slip into that holiday fallacy of like, this is my life now. I day drink and go between Danish cities. So it was quite a rude bump back to earth, particularly traveling on uh, bank holiday services. But we all survived. <laughs> I, I had a little bit of that just the other week when I had a week off in order to just um, house and dog sit for my parents where I just spent like the whole week kind of like relaxing and reading and like getting back to work it was very it was a very rude awakening and like oh i actually have to go to an office and do things and not just sit and play with uh, an adorable labrador and kind of plow through interesting fun sci-fi books oh man what a life <laughs> yeah that's 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 the goal mm. that's what uh what we're all aiming for absolutely uh, so we'll go on to the news this week. Of course, kind of, I suppose probably the biggest news story, which we're not going to get into on this episode because uh, kind of a little hint of something that's happening. Uh, Matt and I are going to do kind of a full episode or, or kind of a mini episode on it, which will go up in the feed on Wednesday. But Avengers Endgame has made just an unholy amount of money in the first three days of its release and $1.2 billion worldwide smashed the opening weekend record in the US by or by almost a hundred million dollars, uh opening to three hundred and fifty million dollars and is just kind of a staggering success. But like I said, we'll we'll kind of talk about that in more detail on the on the other episode, which people will be able to hear in a couple of days. But yeah, that's just one of those things where whenever the the the, the figures for box office in general are always mind boggling. Like even a movie earning like five million dollars for me is like, well, that's more money than I'll probably ever earn. But like when you see those kind of numbers, it really is does just spin your head around just a little bit. Sorry, I, I generally have nothing to to add to that. I'm just speechless. <laughs> Another story, a kind of a, 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 a very, very nice story that was blowing up on Twitter just just today, uh, which was just 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 so very, very lovely, which was uh, Sigourney Weaver went to North Bergen High School to visit the drama club, who were the, the, the incredibly talented and innovative young teenagers who put on that great alien stage show that everyone fell in love with when clips of it circulated on social media, people who had made all these really elaborate homemade costumes and a you know restructured alien to work as a stage play and there was just a really really nice video of her going to visit all of those kids and say hello and say you know how amazing their work was and 
Uh, it's just a very, it's just a very, very lovely clip and a nice story of them all uh, just really freaking out at getting to meet her over it and her clearly being very impressed with all of the the gumption that they showed in making that show look as impressive as it does. It's such a sweet thing, and I think it's a real testament to Sigourney Weaver's general, just her general kind of demeanor. It doesn't feel like some big diva-ish appearance. There's just something really appreciative about her being like, you guys have done an amazing thing. It's like, it's, it feels like peer-to-peer from her. Mm. It's like, you are part of this amazing legacy and so am I. And it's just really heartening to see, you know, people who are, who are you know, yes, yes, she's famous, but she doesn't feel like a celebrity, you know? So it's really mm. nice to see these moments that, are, are quite genuine and she made those kids day but I think she definitely is thinking about it more in terms of like I want to see what you guys are up to you guys are doing an amazing thing you know um and it reminded me of not that long ago the insta story of uh, that, that got across twitter as well of Keanu Reeves being on the same cancelled flight as several people and mm. just showing up and and coordinating everyone getting home in this very like just a decent person kind of way like no stress just like I will help coordinate us all getting home and I think my favorite bit is where he's just like in this van that they've rented driving through various bits of California that he's not all too familiar with it seems so he just reads everyone facts from Wikipedia about where they're going through on his phone in this like (laughs) really like celestial moon child sort of tone and I'm just like Keanu just such a such a sweet sweet boy and that's the same with Sigourney Weaver like it it just seemed like a really like generous is the wrong word because it does feel very equal I I just think it's nice to see nice things in the world occasionally isn't it Ed? Mm, Yes and it's always particularly nice to see that someone who is you know very uh, who's very successful and you know has had all of that tremendous you know has made a huge amount of money and acclaim and everything hasn't been turned into a complete monster by it <laughs> as oh, as yeah. so often is the case like it really is nice you know when people say that um money doesn't change you it reveals you it kind of like it's nice to see oh that cuts both ways it can mean that someone can just be like okay i don't need to worry about money so much i'll just I'll just continue being nice which is kind of what i've often heard about keanu reeves for, for years like i remember years ago hearing someone say that uh, he gives away all of the stuff that he gets given, like at premieres and junkets and things like that, because he's like, oh, "Why do I need this?" Mm. He just kind of like gives it all away, which is like a real, yeah. It was which and that was also, you know, when he was not exactly in a slump in his career because he's someone who's just always working. But when he was like between the peaks of of relevance, I guess, of the Matrix movies and the John Wick movies, which kind of saw a, a real kind of upswing in people appreciating him. Yes. Like in the years when no one was really paying attention to him, the fact that he was still just going around being a decent guy, I oh, think probably absolutely. speaks speaks volumes about him. For sure. Uh, <laughs> a story that was just kind of just kind of weird, really, just because of what it says about the the media landscape now was the uh, was the other day there was a live stream in which the key creatives involved with the new Bond movie were kind of like basically live streaming a press conference which hundreds and thousands of people watched 
and which (laughs) everyone just seemed really annoyed by because the whole thing going into it was oh they're going to do a live stream and they're going to reveal what the movie is called and they're going to reveal all these details about it and then the first thing that pretty much they said was uh we don't really know what the movie's going to be called (laughs) and everyone was like well what the point is this what's the point of this live stream and like they 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 just kind of confirmed some of the details about who's going to be in it obviously uh carrie fukunaga is directing it they confirmed that phoebe waller bridge is being brought on to rewrite the script which was something that had been floated a few days ago and this was kind of like confirming it but it, it was just this really really weird thing that particularly if like me you follow a lot of of writers on twitter and people who have to watch these sort of things for their jobs where they would just briefly being thrown into some sort of weird existential crisis of <laughs> wondering like why am I doing this? Why is this a thing that we do now for uh, just a movie and like this weird applefication of all, all uh, events where people feel like, okay, what you need to do is you need to get someone up there and to give a keynote speech for an hour, even if all you're doing is like confirming very basic things that could just have been sent out to deadline. (laughs) And like you would have got about the same amount of press from it. Yeah. Applefication is exactly the right word. And I think, you'd be hard-pressed to find a sort of movie franchise that is as much like Apple in terms of its sort of cult and, like, certain leaders and things. Mm. It's exciting to see some of the cast come through. I mean, I'm no fan of um, Rami Malek, but, um, you know, Ben Whishaw confirmed again. And and that press photo they decided to use was just so adorable. Like, Mm. it's it's not this kind of, like, stern... Uh, looking like in character no not at all that's that's Ben Whishaw just being delightful holding his sweet face in his own hands and I'm excited about Phoebe Waller-Bridge being on board because of course I am Mm. but part of me wonders if it's going to be a little bit Bridge of Spies where you got to a point where you're like oh we're in Coen Brothers land now and that was part of the film that I liked the most but tonally it sticks out like you know a sore thumb yeah and i just think like as much as i adore killing eve i'd rather see killing eve the film than phoebe waller bridge doing bond Mm. and and you do wonder because like carrie fukunaga has has made a few things now at this point but he's not necessarily someone who has the strongest directorial stamp so you you don't know how well he'll be able to meld together you know what what could be some very disparate tones or if all of like what you know Phoebe Waller-Bridge you know comes in you know writes in a bunch of jokes but then the the Purvis and Wade who are the people who basically write all the Bond movies just then kind of come in and be like okay yeah this bit kind of works and then you know it kind of ends up being that thing like with the first X-Men movie where Joss Whedon like wrote a huge amount of it and then literally only like one line of his dialogue ended up in the movie and it's the worst one but that's like the problem I think you kind of have with bringing someone who's a very distinctive writer in onto a project is like the particularly at what feels like a very late stage since they're going to start filming very very soon and they start filming next month oh my god yeah it's, it's not like you know in the old days when Aaron Sorkin would script doctor most of the big movies coming out of Hollywood for a little while and it was very clear that you could see oh they must have brought him on a reasonably early stage in this because it all kind of has his his flavor when you say script doctor that is a euphemism for do too much cocaine mm-hmm. let's be honest well it, it's it's taking a, a form of medication <laughs> oh, <God. Yeah. laughs> 
<laughs> I think, yeah, you're right. To me, it just sounds like it's going to be a bit of a hot mess. And I don't think just throwing talented people at a project necessarily makes it work. I'm interested to see what comes out of it. I've dropped out of Bond like for the past couple, um, mainly because I just couldn't get on with the with the titles, which I know is stupid. But um, <laughs> if you if you, I just yeah, just not the greatest bombastic themes either. And I just think I'd just rather be watching Timothy Dalton, the two films that he was in on repeat. Mm, to be honest, yeah. I think it's interesting that you've got Carrie Fukunaga and. Phoebe Waller-Bridge and in terms of this kind of like mad packaging I don't know it feels a little bit zeitgeisty to me and I think it's part of the failing project of Bond to bring itself up to date and it's like how how, how can you bring it up to date like I don't mm. like it'll be interesting to see what what Phoebe Waller-Bridge brings to it because I think I'm not sure Bond has the elasticity of the sense of humour and yet the actual deep peril and stakes that she manages to bring to Killing Eve. Mm. Yeah. And it, it really does feel like the the seriousness of what the Bond franchise has become now is a hindrance to it. Absolutely. Like, like, you, like as a broader franchise that has been going for more than 50 years at this point, like Bond has a certain degree of elasticity and that it can evolve to suit the tone of the times, but once it has established a tone, it's kind of hard for it to switch it up within that tone. And, like, you, you couldn't imagine, like, the Pierce Brosnan version of Bond doing Casino Royale yeah. and, like, the series continuing on with that in the same way that it's kind of hard to imagine the Daniel Craig one suddenly being very, very kind of, like, arch and quippy. And, and I'm not saying that that's all that Phoebe Waller-Bridge does, but, like, that seems to be, like, if you were wanting to bring her on, that seems to be what would be attracting the producers to her. Yes. Because that's the thing that's most easily applied to what Bond is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and a story that just sounds so truly terrifying is the announcement of a live-action Rugrats movie or kind of further details about it because I think this has been mooted for a while and the thing about this story, this particular um, story that really stood out to me was the confirmation that it's going to be CGI babies portraying the characters uh, which just sounds like it could be incredibly unsettling because like Initially, when people say, like, oh, live-action Rugrats movie, you think, oh, well, like, we had a couple of baby genius movies and we survived, you know. it's You can make a movie with kind of babies crawling around, I guess, and put in voiceover or whatever and call it Rugrats and be fine. But then, like, the idea of doing it CGI babies with real people seems yeah, deeply distressing because you either end up with babies that are cartoony and therefore look nothing like their parents in which case you're entering some sort of weird uh who framed roger rabbit world but where there isn't a toon human <laughs> divide or you go like super photorealistic and they're talking babies that look like real humans in which case that's just opening up like a whole mess of horrors and it just it just sounds so so misguided and strange this whole project and uh it's it's one of those projects which i'm i kind of struggle 
to believe will actually happen but when it if it eventually does in the first photos come out it's going to make you know the the images of sonic look positively tame i'm cgi baby <laughs> when it comes to this i mean like i i thought about pad i was thinking about paddington today because mm. i often do it's just getting emotional thinking how wonderful those films are so it's not to say that you can't have a mix of cgi and live action but of all the things to do i mean one of the things i love about rugrats is that it was purposefully nightmarish in terms yes. of its in terms of its style and i think i mean correct me if i'm wrong and and who knows i'm speculating here but i i see quite a strong line of influence between rugrats and big mouth Mm, in that yeah. kind of oh that it's a bit of an assault on my eyes but somehow it it works and i think making that almost like it, instead of it being um a sort of tongue in cheek element like just making that very clear is just going to be horrible mm yeah, because like the original series was by what was it Klasky Supo, who yes. also did like the early years of The Simpsons, the uh, horrific oh, God, early yeah. seasons of The Simpsons where everything is horribly off model and nothing looks right. And I think that that because um, Gabor Supo was, I believe, um, he, or he, I believe he's still alive, but he uh, was uh, Eastern European, and mm. I think that there's a lot of that style inherent in the Rugrats which is one of the reasons why it's so weird that, that show became as popular as it is because it really did not look anything like a lot of cartoons aimed at children that were there at the time they didn't didn't have like a Ren and Stimpy or uh, Rocco's Modern Life extra layer of weirdness that made it appeal to kind of older older kids and adults who were like what the hell is this there was something it was like Rugrats was fairly straightforward storytelling that was just delivered in a real unusual visual style and uh, it worked because the whole thing was kind of oddly grotesque which is why you could have like an episode where tommy goes into basically the house from gray garden and it's all it's all gothic and uh, upsetting and it, that's just not a visual quality that you could really see working in you know kind of photorealism everything will just look like those um you know when people sh share those what Homer Simpson would look like as a real person images and it's just just really macabre <laughs> I feel like it'd be that for 90 minutes <laughs> and uh, our final story was the is the release of the uh, latest trailer for the Deadwood movie which is coming out on May the 31st I think that was new as well confirmation that it's airing in May 31st which is not new other than the fact that you know it's new images of the characters from Deadwood and the actors playing them existing in Deadwood again and saying David Milch lines and being like oh my god this is actually happening <laughs> this is this has somehow been kind of like forged and brought together in the ether but the other thing that's really notable about it was it was met by a lot of articles of people who had visited the set and spoken to David Milch or interviewed him over email in in some cases because um He's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and uh, a lot of the writers who uh, went to the set have said that he preferred to answer questions over email because it was just ensured that he would be able to answer them like when his, he was thinking most clear. But there were, just, there were just some really lovely articles that kind of came out about what it took to bring Deadwood back and, you know, the, the ways in which 
the passage of time have affected the show and the actors and Milch himself. There's a great one from Matt Zolosites in uh, in Vulture called Sundown over Deadwood, which is really, uh, really kind of like beautiful. And there was a great one in The Hollywood Reporter. And just like this whole week for me has just been reading about Deadwood, starting to re rewatch the series for the first time in quite a while and just being reminded what a, a wonderful, rich show that is and being simultaneously very, very excited at getting to revisit those characters again and to to see them in one you know kind of have one last to tell one last story but uh feeling just like also very sad thinking oh this this is definitely the end and this be is being conceived as a way for these actors to finally say goodbye to these characters in a way that they weren't able to do in you know 2007 if they had made the fourth season I mean, sacrilege here, but I still haven't finished Deadwood. But even just the few episodes that I have seen watching the trailer, I felt myself get really emotional. Um, mm. I think because it has been coming for such a long time. And the way that the trailer's cut is really interesting, where you've got, you know, Cocksucker manages to be like both a punchline and a kind of cutesy catchphrase, which is quite something. Mm. Um, and I think yeah like you say it's interesting that it has taken like kind of quite this long but that there's still going to be like some sense of resolution yeah or, or just like this enough of a return because thinking of other stuff that's been cancelled like so like hbo wise and uh or, or just recently where where things get like a feature to end it um i mm -hmm. think of yeah i think of things like looking and yeah. um sensate and that all mm -hmm. churned through quite quickly because I guess because you already had like the production team together and they were kind of on hand to be ready if they got, you know, greenlit for another series. So it's interesting to see, yeah, genuinely like, wow, this has been a long time. Uh, also in terms of um, HBO giving shows movies that you would think, oh, they get a movie and Deadwood didn't, was Hey Ladies or Hello Ladies, the... Uh... Stephen Merchant sitcom that yeah. ran for two seasons that no one watched. Yeah. Um, which was just like, I think that was the one, I would like to think that that's the one that like David Milch was just like on the phone immediately. like, oh, Stephen Merchant gets a movie, but we don't? Okay, yeah. I see how it is. And like shamed them into giving him the money to make the, make the Deadwood movie. But it, it, the thing about the trailer that I find really affecting is just how old everyone looks and how old everyone is allowed to look. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. There's no attempt to make the people like look uh you know to, to kind of like really make them look what people in their 50s are expected to look like now in movies you know like where you're you're trying very very hard to make them look as young as possible in the way that you know like if you look at timothy oliphant in the trailer for deadwood and then you look at him in like the latest series of santa clarita diet he does look like he's 20 years younger between yes. the two and it's, it's really just a case of they've gone oh we're just gonna let him kind of look what a normal person looks like admittedly just one of the most handsome men but still someone who like is kind of like what that incredibly handsome man would look like if they were allowed to just kind of age normally and I think there is something really, really very affecting about seeing these people kind of like return to these roles and just be like, you know, these characters have aged. They have lived through 10, what I presume are very rough years in in um, South Dakota. And even though they've kind of built 
these new lives themselves, and some of them are clearly in much more prosperous states than they were when the show left them. You know, they're they're still they're still weathered, and there is something deeply moving about that. And and in light of the the thing with David Milch and his Alzheimer's diagnosis, like I think that all plays into it as well. Like it feels like the work of someone who is really contemplating the loss of faculties and aging and and at one point in i think it was in the um the hollywood reporter article like he he they're they're talking about a scene that swearingen is doing the Ian McShane's character and they're characterizing it as a man facing the universal realization that the body fails as insight sharpens and like that really seems to be something that's underpinning the underpinning the the show based on the trailer and everything that people have said about it and it's just made me really very excited for it and kind of re uh reignited my love of, of deadwood and made me kind of realize oh yeah that is probably like one of my four or five favorite television shows ever made and yeah. uh yeah i'm just very very excited to to see more of it so our topic this week is the visual album which is the Kind of, it's kind of an art form that's been around for a, a while, but kind of seems to have risen in prominence in recent years through things like Beyonce's Lemonade or Janelle Monet's Dirty Computer and more recently uh, Childish Gambino's Guava Island. You know, this idea of creating a visual work, either a collection of themed music videos or an ent- something with an entire narrative to complement an artist's music and obviously you know guava island uh, was the thing that came up most recently the visual album as an idea has been uh has been circulating around for, for a very very long time so we wanted to talk about these recent examples and and how they differ from some of the ones uh in the past so uh emily uh why don't you kick us off and uh talk about guava island since you watched it uh, today, I think I did. I, I, I finished it basically five minutes before we came on our call. Um, <laughs> I mean, gosh, like what a weird little thing. Um, looks absolutely beautiful mm. in that four three ratio, and, and clearly shot on film. I love Hiro Mirai and and his mm-hmm. his work big time. Like not just his his music videos. Obviously, the most probably significant one and relevant to this uh, being This Is America. Charles Gambino's, uh, which, you know, dominated the cultural conversation for some time, and rightly so, I think. But also um, directing Atlanta and Barry as well, because, you know, I'm a big, big Barry fan. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was interesting to see something that was managed to be simultaneously, like, colourful and sort of drained and grainy. Um, Mm. just, just Just as a thing to look at, I thought it was it was beautiful. It's this weird kind of midden between having a plot and not. <laughs> and yeah. uh, there are points where you do just feel like, please get to a song. There were, <laughs> there, there, were, there were moments where it felt almost like West Side Story-ish to me, particularly the take of This Is America, which they include in it, which I thought was interesting because it still seems to have a lot of similar touch points. But I did just think I kind of wish I was watching the, the, the actual video. Uh, Rihanna's mm. great. Rihanna's great in it. There's nowhere near enough Letitia Wright at all. Yeah. Um, it's just this kind of in betweeny. I'd, I'd much rather they'd sort of leaned into it being a film or a proper short 
And this was yeah. all kind of to do with Coachella. And I guess that's kind of, it's an interesting thing to do. I'm not like entirely aware of what else, like like in terms of like films that have been premiered at Coachella. But uh, I think there's a line from so many incredible performers um, musically, music artists, I think veer into becoming more like performance art on stage. Mm. Like Sia had that really incredible set that involved like people like Paul Dano <laughs> and, <laughs> and Kristen Wiig. And I think there's something kind of great if you're like, cool, I've got this time and this stage. This is exactly the kind of world and, and the tone I'm going to set. But I think that's, I don't think Guava Island, here's me starting on a a bum note ed i don't think it manages to really successfully be anything in particular mm. and i guess really before after criticizing it what do we mean by a visual album i mean like you were saying there you know a sort of collection of themes and i think it's interesting how it's kind of come back instead of being like a sort of solely promotional thing it's actually becoming more of an art form in itself and I think like the 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 major sort of touch paper set point has to be Lemonade um, Mm. Beyonce yeah Um, and I remember so clearly like (laughs) um, basically sort of a live streaming my watching it because I was um, painfully unemployed at that point but it was worth it (laughs) because I got to see Lemonade like straight away and just texting my my best friend in real time as I watched it being like Beyonce has thrown her wedding ring at the lens she gives no fucks I repeat Beyonce has no fucks to give and I think what Lemonade did so spectacularly and the visual album itself rather than the album solely because don't get me wrong it's back-to-back bangers it's super interesting but there is something about the beauty and the aesthetics and the politics of being able to represent so much visually through this kind of connection of sing singled out music videos but then there's this flow and so it's so evocative like to use Warsenshire's poetry as this kind of really prosaic like it's not a set plot but there is kind of movement and it's really evocative and I think that's it like the poetry sort of works so much better I think as a kind of connecting um sinew and all of these different really uh dreamlike images kind of seeming to sort of almost go back into the past and then witches and <laughs> new orleans and katrina and it was just this absolute kind of blossoming point of beyonce literally having no fucks to give like having this sort of very you know personal betrayal in her private life and then that kind of opening up through this like portal of pain to understanding this kind of generational systemic issue to do to do with gender to do with race and and to end up being so like hopeful and rallying as well I think mm. is incredible I haven't watched Homecoming yet but it's amazing that we're still there's still so much to unpick about that that was such a dense cultural event and then not that long ago um Dirty Computer Janelle Monae's yes. um which as a visual album I think is also brilliant and I think people didn't quite it it, it didn't seem to sort of make as much of a splash as 
lemonade and not saying that it was ever going to be able to do that it's it's a very different piece of work but the fact that it didn't kind of push forward more surprised me because I think it again what it does really well is it doesn't try and be an hour it doesn't try and fit plot in whereas that does have more of a narrative arc we, mm. we set up these characters and we see the kind of changes but the music videos as for, you know for the for the singles kind of it allows them to breathe but it keeps that flow and also doesn't hammer home a plot like you would in a narrative feature <laughs> it does this kind of again quite poetic suggestive flow and I think those the two that really stand out to me in terms of of stuff that's like modern and really great um and that was just what was disappointing about Guava Island I think it's a bold experiment. It's interesting that it seems to be sort of trying to criticise like America and yet it was shot in Cuba and I don't know how they managed to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and it looks great and it sounds great, but I think it's it feels a little bit rushed to me. I don't know. Um, and I don't think it's, it's weird because even though I think Childish Gambino, aka Donald Glover, is a really fantastic, interesting artist... And Hiro Murai is a brilliant director. And, you know, This Is America was such an incredible video. When they do this kind of stuff together, it kind of veers into a little bit, I think it's a bit indulgent. Like, because um, mm. this isn't the first time that they've they've worked together like this. Like, because um, they did, even though it's not you know, as musical as Guava Island, um, Clapping for the Wrong Reasons, which was the, sh- yes. the short film that um, kind of uh, precluded... Gambino's album um, because the internet which is this real kind of like it's sort of his I think it came out sort of not that long before Donald Glover like deleted all like announced that he was leaving all social media and it's this kind of like slightly Sisyphean eternal recurrence but it's still like I'm sorry your life is so perfect and similar (laughs) day to day like and I can't really see I feel like the political points that are trying to be made in Guava Island are a bit more reaching and a bit it's just a little bit on the nose. I don't think there's... And I think because it's trying to state so much stuff explicitly through the plot, it doesn't have the power of that incredible mix between sound and vision that the This Is America music video had. Mm. So, yeah, that's kind of where I sit on visual albums, I think, in terms of what I think... In- intentions and setting out, yeah, that's where I sit with them. Mm. I think... In terms of Dirty Computer, I think what's really great about that one is that it does have it has a stronger sense of narrative to it than uh, than Lemonade does, in the sense that you like you say they they introduce these characters, but then uh, and the character that Janelle Monae plays is someone who's having her memory erased, and so the music videos are presented as memories that she's experienced and there are these kind of like technicians who are deleting them after they watch them and one of the technicians is like yeah as the emotion picture as it's uh build plays uh he kind of gets increasingly more kind of agitated and confused by the images he's seeing because he's like these don't seem like memories are these dreams what is this but they yeah. they, they it's more kind of a case of like okay the reason why these aren't being presented in some sort of linear thing and why they aren't necessarily dramatic scenes is because this person is viewing what appear to be 
kind of like fantasies or dreams of this character are, are kind of allowing Monet to kind of like explore specifically ideas about sexuality and about being black and about being a woman in America, a company that has very rarely been good to people who are any of those things, let alone yes. people who are all three. And it's also, like you said about like Lemonade, there's kind of like a, tr- a triumphalism to it, but also a real kind of sense of like, yeah, things are bad. <laughs> like there's a whole song in it, which is just about if you fuck the world up, we'll fuck it back down, which is like literally like, yeah, things are terrible. But, you know, if we have to keep on living and we have to just not give in to the bleakness of thinking, well, we're screwed. There's nothing we can do. You have to kind of keep going and keep being yourself and keep trying to fight against the repressive forces that will hold you down and that's all like really really beautiful and i think that the 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 way in which the 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 visual album kind of like conveys that which is also very clear in all the songs like the songs all carry those across as well and it's a great album but i think the visual components of it seeing all of these real wonderful sort of futuristic you know only a few years advanced futuristic images you know and and a visual aesthetic that seems at times like it's owing to things like uh alejandro jodorowsky and and these real kind of like visually beautiful and colorful works of sci-fi or kind of like acid trip movies is really compelling and really kind of creates a mood to it that's really fascinating and and uh, I think that the there the kind of the the gossamer thread of narrative suits uh, binds together all of the images and the themes so well yes. in a way that you don't see in something like uh, an earlier example of a visual album and the first example that I think I ever encountered, which was the Daft Punk movie Interstellar Five 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 Five, which is basically all of the music videos from their album Discovery, but placed over a anime film made by a bunch of people who at various points have worked on things like Dragon Ball Z and like visually that movie is very very nice looking like there's a slight cheapness to it that I think you see in a lot of like mass-produced 90s and 2000s anime but it still is like kind of visually very striking and the worlds they create are really good but because it's just basically scenes from an anime film that have Daft Punk songs played over it. Yes. <laughs> There's like, it's not got quite the same sort of rhythmic quality to it that you see in in Lemonade or or Dirty Computer or even the the musical scenes in Guava Island. Like there are some bits where it's just a scene is happening and the song doesn't really have anything to do with it. Like it'll be a a, a sad moment in the film, but Daft Punk don't really have that many sad songs. No. So it just kind of keeps going at its own pace. Or there are things where the connection is very tangential, like the alien rock band who've been kidnapped and taken to Earth, they're returning back to their home planet and they just play the song too long over it because it's a long journey. And <laughs> it's, it's a long part it's a long part of the film. So they just play too, too long over it and it doesn't really connect to anything. But it is it is like a really fun idea. It's not the most elegant example of the form. But it, I watching it last night for the first time in full, because up until then really I'd only seen it as the individual music videos because they used to be uh inescapable for a while on on mtv in the uh, in the early 2000s watching it all in its entirety i thought oh this this is like this is really really fun and it was a real good stab at trying to do something with the music video form particularly you know 
that Daft Punk were always known as such a visual band anyway, and they put so yes. much effort into their their music videos. Uh, it was really interesting seeing them taking that and pushing it further and thinking, okay, what's a long form thing we can do for for this album and this collection of songs? Absolutely, I think that point of like performing is really interesting because obviously Daft Punk don't have. I realise how bizarre this is going to sound, but they don't have faces. I mean, they have faces. We're just not allowed to see them. So they're constantly looking for kind of stand-ins. So they, they have these really strong visual, yeah, sort of, sort of substitutes. And I think Sia definitely sort of went that way as well. Mm. And that was so interesting in terms of like, how can you be incredibly vulnerable and yet immensely public the whole time and, and having these kind of you know her little like avatars almost <laughs> in various different ways like that wig becoming so like specific the thing that interests me is that like instead of 555 you know is animated in that real kind of like manga style and that's one of the few visual albums that i can think of that that is i mean everything that we've talked about recently has been live action and also african-american artists like mm. and I don't know if there's any significance in in that but I think like there's so much in terms of there's there's so much to discuss and I think lemonade in particular is like an african american cultural event that that mm. everyone else had to you know you know there, there's this idea of like oh you know maybe it's not for you and that was a really bold radical thing for beyonce it's like i'm not making myself like consumable I'm making I'm, I'm making art like like to me that's when Beyonce became like an artist and politically aware or at least letting everyone know she's politically aware and exactly where she stood and then Dirty Computer I think is maybe more more queer I think mm -hmm. as well but it's interesting to me because I can't think of I mean god forbid a Taylor Swift visual album <laughs> 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 and like I think back to um, one one of the because this isn't like like we're talking you know this isn't ev even though this seems to be happening more I think because of streaming services and and things like there's more space for this but let's not forget the purple one Prince uh, mm -hmm. who who had the 69th best selling video of 1994 I mean of, I think he was happier with that than he was with uh, <laughs> it being the number the number one three chains of gold. Uh, which is a collection of videos for love symbol and <laughs> Wikipedia. <laughs> the Wikipedia page wonderfully says tied together with a loose plot line. But this loose plot line is is very symbolic and significant and like out there in terms of like there's like an assassination and Egyptian princesses, Kirsty Alley's in it, and that was um, direct to video because you know mm. Prince could do that. <laughs> And I remember just thinking about videos that would like music videos themselves that would get like banned or you could only get them on VHS, right? Like, yeah. and but I can't think of genuinely like in terms of white artists. I think Madonna did something reasonably, but 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 never never like full length. And I do think it's mm. interesting that there does seem to like in in terms of what's happening at the moment that it does seem to be african-american heritage artists who are kind of seizing this mm. and that there's been a precedent for that i could think of two white artists that have done visual albums um in in kind of like recent times um there was one that Noah and the whale did in oh 2000 
nine or so because i remember it was like for their second album and it was like oh no in the whale did something interesting okay but i never watched it uh but yeah. i do remember that that was like their big thing like whenever they were talking in interviews it's like we've done a whole short film that complements the, the the album and then no one ever heard from Noah and the Whale again. Um, <laughs> and the other one was um, Animal Collective did uh, a, 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 a visual album called Odd Sack, of course. which was like a abstract short film that was about 50 something minutes long. And I remember watching it in the showroom bar in like 2010, I want to say. I think it was yeah, literally it was 2010, yeah. like a, a, a big event that they, they put on there where they just like, it was like, oh, why say they? I mean the showroom, not Animal Collective. That would have been crazy. But like that was that was a kind of like a big thing. But yeah, I, I do feel as if one of the reasons why I think maybe that you're seeing a lot of African-American artists who are doing visual albums now, I think is that it's a method of like, particularly in the case of something like Lemonade, like you do really see... Um, a lot of African art in and African American art in, and and there, there's lots of visual language and symbolism, and like you said, poetry that is being drawn in from all of these different sources that aren't being used in a lot of the mainstream culture. And I wonder if it's like you know, it's very hard for uh, black directors to make movies. It's very hard for black writers to get the foot in the door making TV shows. But there are lots of black artists who are very very successful musically and have big audiences and i wonder if like they're seeing that and thinking oh this is like a way for me to take this culture and these cultural artifacts and put them out into the world in a way that lots of people can suddenly see them you know and and uh, not you know for necessarily for for mainstream consumption but like for saying this is a piece of the culture of my people i want them to be able to see someone out there promoting it and putting it out there in a way that white artists do all the time because they just have control of pretty much all of the the levers of production and so yeah so that to me is i i wonder if that's a part of why we've seen an uptick in it and, you know other things you know kind of just in terms of production for like the, the availability of digital cameras it's maybe a little cheaper to be able to do these sort of things on this sort of a scale now yeah yeah than it was before but but also the kind of the weakness of the music industry as well. I think the fact that it's so much harder for artists to break through in some respects now that someone coming through with something like this seems like a really good way to get attention as well. So like maybe record labels would be more willing to take a risk on something like that. Totally. God, Oddsack, that's such a blast from the past. I did not watch it in the uh, cultural confines of the showroom bar. I remember watching it at my uh, then boyfriend's house projected onto his wall and I'd imbibed various substances and Odd Sack still felt weirder. It was like, <laughs> this is definitely not this is definitely not the, the drugs. I wonder what then, I think you make absolutely excellent points there, Ed, and I wonder what the kind of the future is because I don't see like everyone doing a visual album because I think it would become... No. Saturated is a very particular kind of thing to do for a musician, music artist, to kind of emphasise the artistry point, mm. right? Like, because I think in terms of performance and, and general kind of appearance and, and kind of cultural category, like Beyonce, Janelle Monáe and Childish Gambino are absolutely like, of course they do visual albums, really. And they've also, all all of them have put their fingers into like acting pies, 
mm-hmm. like they are sort of multi multi hyphenated threats. And I'm interested to see like what what happens next and what the next major sort of visual album would be because I don't see Beyonce doing the same again. I don't see any of them repeating that to be honest. Apart from maybe Childish Gambino because obviously he did like clapping for the wrong reasons before and this is you know the next one i don't know who i'd actually really love to see a visual album from next you know do you have one uh, i think i'd like to see kendrick lamar do one. Oh, i think fuck yeah. he's some of his music videos have really kind of veered in that direction particularly a lot of the stuff on to pimp above butterfly really had like a, a unifying aesthetic and uh if you look at like something like king kunta that is an amazing oh, video yeah. and its yeah. use of the the four three aspect ratio or you may even even one one actually is a very square uh music video but that's like a, a really visually arresting video that really suggests the you know kind of a time and a place and i think that he is someone who's demonstrated like such bursting creativity in general and in terms of as well also not just in terms of his music but if you look at his song like his stage show and you know whenever he does performances at award shows and things like that there's always a lot of choreography there's always uh, intended to make a very strong political statement and i think that he seems like someone who would really take to the visual album format and do something really interesting with it god totally i think oh i'm just thinking about the um video for all right as well god that's mm. incredible um thinking about it now actually mainly because i've been listening to them both pretty much non-stop i think robin Having seen mm-hmm. her show, I think she could do something incredible because she had, like, I was fortunate enough to have my life affirmed and changed by watching her on the Honey Tour recently. And that state, this very, very jealous about that, by the way. Very jealous. I'm jealous of me, Ed, and I was there, <laughs> jealous of all parts of myself. That was absolutely stunning in terms of the stagecraft and the actual, like, world that she created. So I'd love to see that. I think also Lizzo could have a great time, but that would be more... I'd love to see something that... Because Lizzo is is someone who is kind of, like, I think politically quite radical in terms of, like, uh, self-acceptance, body positivity, independence. But it's it's more a kind of... I could see her do a visual album that's really quite funny because I think she has such a brilliant tongue-in-cheek tone to all of her videos so that Mm. could i think that could be really fun because a lot of these visual albums as as like brilliant and kind of bracing as they are do have a sort of somberness to them or a kind of polemic polemic and i think lizzo would just be a blast um and then and then finally loyal karna um who i think is um the uk's kind of kendrick lamar ish equivalent but you know a stunning artist in his own right mainly because i just uh adore his latest album and also really like his face he's a, he's a very beautiful man um so more of that I'm, I'm gonna be superficial and honest about it there you go <laughs> so we end this episode as we end all our episodes of shot first shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week i'm gonna do a little bit of a, a doubler soz am i allowed okay. Yeah, since since Matt's not on the main one, sure. All right, thank you. So, uh, number one, having just mentioned him, uh, Loyal Karna's album, uh, Not Waving But Drowning, is an absolutely stunning, feeling, poignant piece of art. Um, I think it's very exciting to hear such a sort of sensitive voice in that in that genre. And then number two, um, yes, I know I'm biased, but uh, I would like everyone, if you are available, uh, 
across Scotland to come to the Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival. In particular, uh, the film programme, which yours truly is coordinating um, over the bank holiday weekend um, in May. Um, and all of the films are really striking. Like it's a, um, an incredible programme, which I had nothing to do with. I'm going to emphasise, I'm just making sure everyone's in the right place at the right time. It's other people who select the films. I've been fortunate enough to watch Evelyn, uh, which is a new film by um, Orlando von um, Einsiedel, who um, directed The White Helmets. Um, but it's an absolutely, like, it, it, a really raw and generous piece of filmmaking because it's about a walk that he and his family do as they're actually starting to talk about the suicide of his younger brother um, 12, 13 years before. And it's, um, it, it's a really obviously difficult watch, but you'd, it's just so um, awe-inspiring in terms of how open that they're being and how, like, how sort of existentially difficult it is and, and grief and picking out meaning from something that, that seems to be so meaningless. Um, so I think it's actually a very generous act for them to let people in and see if it see if it helps other people have incredibly difficult but very worthwhile conversations. So that's Evelyn. Sounds fantastic. Uh, I'm going to recommend a sketch show which is on Netflix called I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson. Tim Robinson is a uh, writer and performer. He wrote for Saturday Night Live for a few years and was a feature performer on there for one season. He's done other stuff like uh, Detroiters with Sam Richardson. And this is uh, a sketch show built built largely around him, but not solely by around him. Like he's he's in a lot of the sketches, but he's not in every single one. He brings in people like Vanessa Bayer and Cecily Strong, you know, and Sam Richardson, Conor O'Malley. Really funny, inc- yeah, incredibly funny people uh, into this sketch show where. I guess the the unifying theme is kind of a sense of awkwardness of people kind of pushing a situation to a point of uh, where, uh, as as the title says, they they should leave but kind of keep pushing on uh, regardless. It's incredibly funny. The sketches are all really kind of sh- they're all kind of very sharp. They don't overstay their welcome. The episodes themselves are very very short. Like I think they're all only about twenty minutes or so. So it's very easy to, as I did, accidentally watch all of them over the course <laughs> of a single evening because they just kind of keep rolling and they're incredibly uh, quick and short and very very funny. And uh, I think it's it's just really really terrific some of the funniest sketch stuff i've seen in years uh if people want a particular highlight the first episode has an episode has a sketch at a baby um beauty pageant or which is (laughs) just keep escalating to weirder and weirder places you and i were talking about this emily beforehand and talking about how the thing the show does really really well is it takes you in one direction with a lot of the sketches where you think okay i know where this is going and it will suddenly veer off and do something entirely different and i think uh, that that one really distills some of the best stuff of robinson's approach to comedy um the the aesthetic qualities of the show how well it mimics the things that it is it is kind of riffing on and just how game every performer is in it like everyone's just doing really really great work so yeah i really recommend that on netflix i think you should leave with tim robinson
If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, Spotify, Player FM, all the usual places. Leave us a review, rate us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. In fact, we'll be back in a couple of days with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.